0: Let me read off the names of some schools for you. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth, Columbia, Brown University. I could keep going. Do we know what all of these schools have in common? I'm sure they're all wonderful schools. Someone says they're from Harvard, all of a sudden they get a whole nother level of respect. They're wonderful schools, however, each and every one of them was founded to train ministers in how to share the gospel. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, they were started at the beginning of our country was started. And they said, this is where men will gather and they will become equipped and trained to share the gospel with others. What though all those schools have in common is they have all sort of fallen away from their first love. None of them today would hold to a a historic biblical understanding of Christianity. They have fallen away. It doesn't just happen to institutions. It happens to people as well. And as we began our look into the book of Jude last week, that is the topic that Jude is focused on. Jude's a hard book in the Bible to find. It comes right before the book of Revelation, and so oftentimes we skip it because it's only one page in our Bibles, so we're anxious to get to the interesting things in the book of Revelation. But for a series of weeks here, we're going to look at Jude and his letter and what it has to teach us. And what, it's, what it teaches us is it says, this is, this is how you deal with people um, and how you address the topic of people falling away from the faith. There was a pastor uh, a while ago named Adrian Rogers. He described falling away from the faith this way. He said, first you receive the truth, Then you reject the truth, then you ridicule the truth, and then you replace the truth. More recently, we've begun to describe it as deconstruction. And so if you keep up with headlines within contemporary Christianity, there is a trend going on called deconstructionism. And that's where Christian leaders or just Christian individuals begin to deconstruct their faith. And where that lands often wonderful Christian people is in a land of atheists and agnostics as they deconstruct what they once constructed. It's a term that's becoming popular in our uh, language today, deconstructionism. Last week, as we looked at the opening of the book of Jude, we saw that um, if we understand who we are in Christ... Um, It can fill us with hope and joy. It tells us in verse 1 of Jude that we are called, we are beloved in God the Father, we are kept for Jesus Christ. Jude gives us a blessing. He says that may you have mercy, peace, and love be multiplied towards you. We hope that is true of you, and as that captures the reader's attention, Jude goes on in the following verses to talk about how to deal with those who are deconstructing their faith, how to... Eventually, in the book of Jude, he's going to talk about how to come alongside those who are deconstructing their faith, how to contend for the faith. But he also is going to talk about how serious a matter it is as people have crept into the church and are encouraging others to do the same. So let me read for you Jude verses 3 and 4. I think we have it for the screens. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith what was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into sensuality and deny our only master and Lord Jesus Christ. He's gonna go on for there and we'll look at the verses following that in the coming weeks. Um, next Sunday is Mother's Day. We have a Mother's Day sermon. After that, we have a guest in the pulpit <clears throat> But the following Sunday after that, we'll look at the problem that such people present. So that's the next section after this sermon is, okay, here's the problem that happens when people creep into a church and begin to change the faith and to pervert the grace of God, as Jude says. And then the following week after that, we'll talk about how to respond to the problem, and then we'll close out the series looking at the benediction at the end of the book of Jude. But for this week, we just want to focus on verse 3 and Jude's words that we should contend for the faith. So I'll read it again for us. It says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So Jude is saying in this letter, uh, here's what I wanted to do. I wanted to talk about our wonderful salvation, what we all share in common, our salvation. That would be a great topic for a letter, but... Out of necessity, I'm going to write to you about those who have crept into your church and are changing the faith. So there are times in our life where there's something that we would like to say, but out of necessity, we have to say something different. So this is a topic that comes up in parenting all the time. Uh, my My kids at the end of the evening want to have ice cream right before bed. And as much as I would love to say yes, I feel out of necessity, I must say no. My children have it in their head that we should have a pet pig. (laughs) I would like to say yes, but out of necessity, I feel like I have to say no. Rosie had a birthday party and turned 11 in January. Leading up to her birthday party, we had all kinds of conversations at the dinner table about what the theme of the party could be, and we fell into the topic of food fight. And we talked and dreamed about her birthday party could be just an epic food fight. Uh, That's the theme. And truly, with all my heart, I wanted to say yes. But I felt like, out of necessity, I had to say no. I present it to you just so you can have it and invite me, and then you can do all the cleanup, and I can come and enjoy it. It's a wonderful idea. I wanted to say yes, but out of necessity, I said no. For Jude, he's saying, in our faith, in our life of faith, you and I, like Jude, will have moments where we would love to Talk about this or say this, but out of necessity, we must say that. For example, in your life of faith, you're going to come across a Christian friend who's going to talk to you and share their heart in a struggle or a situation they're going through, and you're probably going to want to say to your friend, your happiness is most important, but out of necessity, it might be that God wants you to say, obedience to God is actually more important than your momentary happiness, right? As much as you'd love to say to your friend, oh, I want you to be happy, out of necessity you might have to say, I want you to be happy, but the most important thing is that you're obedient to God, even if you're not happy having to take that step of obedience, There could come conversations in our Christian life with Christian friends where we want to say, as they tell us about a struggle they're having or they tell us about a sin that they're living in, we might want to say, it's no big deal. But what we might need to say out of necessity is, oh, my friend, don't take sin lightly. Don't take advantage of the grace of God and continue to sin so that his grace could abound in your life. Take sin seriously. As much as I want to say one thing, I feel compelled to say the other out of necessity. And that's what Jude is saying. Oh, I'd really love to talk to you about the love of God and the glories of salvation. But what I feel the necessity, I have to tell you is this. Contend for the faith. Contend for the faith. So what does that mean? What is Jude asking us to do? So when do people contend? When I hear the word contend, I automatically just switch into like sports world. So you contend in sports. The the fighter in the 10th round of the boxing match is contending for the belt, right? Our friends, my wife, is currently, I think right this minute, contending to finish her leg of the marathon. And so she is, uh, as the word means, the definition of the word is to fight or struggle with intense effort. And that's what she's doing. I've watched her over the last six months become a runner, and I've watched her struggle and fight with intense effort. If you go back actually into the Greek because this was originally written in the Greek language and then we translated it into English. If you look at that Greek word I, I butcher it when I pronounce it but what you would hear is that in the root of this Greek word is the word agonize. We get our word agonize from this word and so it's means to struggle to fight with intense effort even to the extent of agonizing is what Jude is asking us to do and is what I can testify that Caroline has done as she's trained for the race. You struggle with great effort, even to the point of have, of having agony as you do it. Now, I think there are two types of people in the room. There are those who, when they hear the call to contend for the faith, they sit up because they're ready to go. They love a good fight. They love a good argument. They love to battle for the faith. And then there are others in the audience who are, would say like, well, the, the last thing in the world I would ever want to do is contend with somebody about something as personal as faith. I mean, faith is a personal and private matter. I'm not going to contend with somebody over their faith. So let me talk to the first party first, the people that love a good fight. Let me just highlight for you that the word contend is not the same word as the word content- contentious. They're two very different words. So the word contentious is defined as causing or likely to cause an argument controversial. That is not what Jude is asking you to do. He is not asking you to go and start arguments. It's not the same word. So it begs the question then, well, then how do we contend for the faith? And again, Jude's going to get to that in his book. But we can look at other scriptures and sort of see how we're supposed to contend because I think you can contend for the faith in good ways and you can contend for the faith in bad ways. So the Apostle Paul was writing a letter to his friend Timothy and he said this in 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 25, he said, "...have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome." But kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. First Peter three fifteen. But in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason. The hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Colossians four five to six. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of your time. Let your speech always be gracious. Seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. I could really just preach from there, because I think that as I look around Christianity, we really just need to paste up 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 23 to 25, everywhere the Christians look anymore. It says, have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. Let me just read that again and quote it. We should all memorize it. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. We are not called to be quarrelsome people. We are called to kindness and respect, and we are called to and contend for the faith with gentleness and graciousness and respect. That's for all you fighters out there. For all of you who are scared to death to contend for the faith, then let me just highlight the fact that sometimes it's necessary. Sometimes it's, it is absolutely necessary. Let's imagine for yourself, let's, let's go, jump in the time machine and go back until around uh, the 1820s. Let's imagine in our time machine of the 1820s, you're a friend of Thomas Jefferson. Thomas Jefferson has you over for dinner. He invites you into his study, and he says, I want you to see what I'm doing with my faith. I want to, this is my Bible. And you say, well, Mr. Jefferson your Bible's all cut up. And he says, yeah, this is what I've done. I've cut passages out of this Bible and pasted them over here. And what I'm taking is all of the passages from the life of Jesus that have nothing to do with miracles or him being God or him raising from the dead and I'm pasting them over here and I'm calling it the life and morals of Jesus of Nazareth. That's a moment to contend for the faith, isn't it? That's a moment to say like, oh, my dear friend Thomas Jefferson, with all kindness and gentleness and respect, I don't think that's a good idea, right? We would, in that moment, certainly we would see the necessity to contend for the faith. There's a great gentleman named J. Gresham Machen, who was a prominent Christian leader in America in the early 1900s. You should look him up. He's a great model for us, even in today's climate, so what Machen did was he was a, he was a great Christian influencer and, and, and teacher. He taught at seminaries. And he began to listen to his Christian friends say things like this. They would say, uh, well, the virgin birth is just one theory of the incarnation. He'd be in meetings with them and they would say, well, the bodily resurrection of Jesus is just one theory of the resurrection. So Machen began to contend for the faith He began to push back, he began to say, would you please define your terms? Because when you say resurrection, when I say resurrection, I think we mean different things. So I want you to define for me who is Jesus. I want you to tell me, is the Bible true? I want you to give me simple answers and define your terms. What do you actually believe? And what Machen began to discover is that the people around him were just changing the definitions of words, and they didn't believe that Jesus rose from the dead, and they didn't believe that Jesus was God, and they didn't believe that the Bible was actually true, and he called people out on it. And he said, you keep calling yourself Christians, but I'm pretty sure that is not a part of the faith, what you believe. You've stepped out. You've fallen away. And he was removed from seminaries. He was removed from groups and denominations, but it was because he chose to contend for the faith. That was in the early 1900s in America. And ladies and gentlemen, the same issues are still going on today. People are still, from the 1800s, they're still cutting and pasting the Bible. They're still saying like, oh, I like Jesus' teachings. Oh, well, what about this one? Oh, well, certainly that's not what he meant. People are still doing what, we're still fighting the same battles Machen was fighting, we still have to contend for the fact that Jesus is God, or else His death on the cross has no significance to us. And so we must get contend for the faith. Sometimes it's necessary, but we have to define the faith. So a lot of times in Scripture, whenever we come across the word faith, it's used this way: like you should um, uh, exercise your faith, right? You should. We are saved by faith. So we talk about my faith in Christ, your faith in Christ. We say keep the faith. We say. Uh, Without faith, um, works, faith without works is dead. Those are all appropriate uses of the word faith. We have them in our scriptures. They're, it's good use of the word faith. But we just wanna highlight here that what Jude is saying, he's using the word in a different way. He's saying that we must contend for the faith. So he's not talking about your personal faith in Jesus. That's not what he's saying you should contend for. It's not a personal thing. He's saying no, we're contending for the faith. It's like was used in Acts 6, 7. This is from Acts 6-7. It says, The number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. So in scriptures, you can have it with the, the in front of it. It's referring to the faith. It's like the body of Christian doctrine, what Christians believe. We must contend for that. And so when Jude is writing, we have to remember, okay, so this is like the late 60s AD. They didn't have the full, uh, all these scriptures hadn't all come together and been bound, and they didn't have it as they sat in pews together. And so Jude is saying, like, no, we have to keep the faith. And so he's saying, like, that's, that's what was built upon the, uh, the prophets of the Old Testament. It's what Jesus taught. It's what the apostles came to town and taught us. This is the faith. As we say it today, it really can just be summarized as saying, like, this is the faith. This is God's word to us. It's inspired by God. Human authors sat down, were inspired by God. The original manuscripts are without error. And as we hold to it now, this is the faith. But what you have a right to say is, like, okay, that's fine, but could you just sort of summarize it for us? which is the challenge that Christianity has been having for thousands of years. How do we summarize the faith? How do we answer the question, well, what is the faith? Because just to say this begs a lot of interpretation. And so starting in 180 AD, well, not even starting in 180 AD, that's the wrong way to say it. The first recorded efforts to summarizing the faith are from 180 AD, and it's called the Apostles' Creed. So the apostles and church leaders got together and said, you know what we should do? is we should try to summarize the faith so that as we're sharing with people and contending for it, we're all agreeing on what we're contending for. And so we, we printed it for the screens today. We'll, we'll walk through it really fast. I'm going to read it for you. This is from a 180 AD. It's amazing that we still have it. It says, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. So even if we just stop there, what the Apostles' Creed did was the church leaders got together and said, so what's most critical? What must we contend for? We're going to let some of the other things fall off. We're going to say, like, but what do we actually contend for? And so they started with God as the creator. And then they moved to the person of Jesus. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died and was buried. He descended to hell, and the third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting. Amen. As an asterisk alludes to there in tiny print that you can't read, that just defines the word Catholic there. If you go back to 180 A.D., the word Catholic had a different definition than it does today. And it meant in their creed the true Christian church of all times and all places. We might refer to it today as the universal church. And so what the Apostles' Creed did is they said, here, here are the essentials. Here is our best effort to define the faith. They would gather again and again and again throughout church history They gathered in 325 to write the Nicene Creed. And what the Nicene Creed did was, well, they said, we need to tweak this. We need to really like zoom in a little bit because we've noticed there's a group of people that don't believe that Jesus is God. So if you listen just to the beginning of the Nicene Creed, they realized, okay, we believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, all that is seen and unseen, And then listen how they describe Jesus now. They say, We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternal, begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. So the church fathers were realizing, like, okay, we defined the faith really well with the Apostles' Creed, but we need to be a little more careful with our words. We need to make sure that people understand that Jesus is God. He is not created, He is not made. It is true God from true God of one being with the Father. So it just illustrates over time as through the history of the church, we've done our best efforts to try and say this is the faith. And these creeds are not of equal value as the Bible. They're not inspired. But they illustrate for us the efforts that we must put in to keeping the faith. And to highlight that there is just one faith. Sometimes I bump into this in conversations with people And it's a a normal uh, mistake to make. They might think that there is a Lutheran faith and a Presbyterian faith and a Methodist faith and a Catholic faith and a non-denominational faith and a Pentecostal faith and a Reformed faith. But better language for that is that there is one faith. There are different interpretations. There are different ways to come up with church governance and we all baptize in different ways. But there is one faith. And actually, the Apostle Paul highlights that in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 3 to 5. And he says, Well, I want us to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body, one Spirit. You are called to one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. There is one faith. We should be able to agree, for example, that Jesus rose from the dead. We should be able to agree that Jesus is God. We should be able to agree that God is creator. And certainly there are a whole host of things that we can agree to disagree on. If you look at Northgate Church's statement of faith online, there are things that we can agree to disagree on and you can still be a member of our church. But there are other statements in our uh, our statement of faith that, quite frankly, if you disagree with us on it, then we're not going to invite you into membership of our church because it's just so important Somebody once said uh, we should, in essentials, unity, in non-essentials, liberty, in all things, charity. Sometimes it's a bit frustrating for me personally to try and figure out what is the faith, like what's the best summary statement for the faith, because it feels kind of like I'm saying what's like the least we can believe and still be a Christian? So it strikes me as like someone saying like, or I ask the question, what's the least I can do for Caroline to marry me? Like, I know, like, I could, I could do all kinds of things. I, there's all, but what's the bare minimum I could do so that Caroline would marry me? It's sort of like, well, that's, that's not really profitable, is it? It's like, that's not helping us. So it feels like that sometimes when we try to say, like, okay, well, what are the essentials that we must be unified on? It's like, well, why are we trying to find the bare minimum? And yet the other side of the coin is it certainly is valuable to be able to define what the essentials of our faith are, that certainly is a very valuable and helpful exercise to go through. So as I try to set it, here's my trick. I boil it down to four words. So if someone were to ask me, well, what is the faith? This is how I explain it to people. God, man, Christ, response. So I would want to tell people God is the creator. He created the world perfect, and he was the king of the world. Creator and king. He created man. He created man in his own image. But man chose his own path. He chose to rebel against the king. For, uh, if you're reading the Bible, he chose to eat the apple. He chose to exercise his own will over the will of the king. And he lives his life in rebellion. And so us as human beings are living lives of rebellion against the king. So that gets us to Christ. Well, who is Christ? Well, Christ is salvation because you know what the consequence consequences, the, the punishment for rebellion is? It's death. The wages of sin is death. And so the consequences for my rebellion against the king of the universe is death. But Jesus said, I will come to earth and I will die the death that you deserve for the rebellion that you're living out. And so it begs the question, you go from God, man, Christ to response. What does it demand? It demands a response. It demands that I trust in Jesus' death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead. It demands that I admit that I live my life in rebellion, that I've chosen to live how I want to live And I must humble myself and say, I am in rebellion. I receive the salvation from Jesus Christ, but not to a faith without works, but to a faith that works. Just this week, somebody knocked on the door of the church and said, through there's a whole story, I won't tell their story now. But they wanted to find Jesus, and they figured they could find him here. And I sat down with my new friend and I said, Do you believe that God is the king? Do you believe that you're living your life in rebellion? Do you believe that Jesus died the death you deserve? Are you willing to put your faith in him? And my new friend said yes, and we prayed together. You know what I didn't talk about one time? The age of the earth. The Nephilim. You can look that up later. We didn't talk about election and predestination. We didn't talk about how the church is structured. We didn't talk about end times prophecy we didn't talk about how to exercise our spiritual gifts. What we did was we focused on the essentials, and my friend joined the family of God. That's the, why we emphasize defining the faith. Once for all delivered to the saints. It's the last phrase in our scripture for the morning. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. That phrase sort of communicates to me that it is complete. Once for all. It's complete. This is how cults start. Cults start when somebody comes along and says, oh, it's not complete, and I actually got a word from the Lord, and there's another book, or there's another chapter, there's a new teaching, and God gave it to me, and now I want to give it to you, and it actually changes this a bit, so you just need to follow me. That's how cults start. Once for all, it's faith is complete. The faith has also been delivered. It's been handed down to us. That's what that term means. It's been handed down. So as it's been handed down to us, what is our job? What's the job of the foot, of the running back? The ball's been handed to them. The job of the running back is to not let go of it, to hold on to it. And so that's what you and I have been tasked to do. We've been handed down to us, and we should hand it down to the next generation that comes behind us. So if our job is to take what's been handed to us and then pass it on to the next generation behind us, that means we must contend for the faith. We must keep it, preserve it, not be inventors. We should be conservationists, not inventors. The winds of culture blow real strong for about 50 to 100 years, and then they blow the opposite direction 100 years later. And the Christian faith should stand in the midst of the winds of culture and the the different countries of the world, different times of the world. The Christian faith should be passed down and be preserved. We are conservationists. We're not inventors. It's been passed down, and we should pass it down to the next generation. This week, uh, Lenny sent me a text, and he said, check out this Our Daily Bread. If you don't do the Our Daily Bread, they're in the foyer for you to have. They're an app on your phone. So one of the Our Daily Bread readings this week told the story of the Australian Regent honey eater. That is a bird in Australia. They have a whole bunch of different animals in Australia than we have here, and they have a bird called the honey eater, and the honey eater is in trouble. It's dying off. They think there are only about 300 birds remaining in the wild. So, there's a number of reasons why they're dwindling in number, but one of those reasons is the males are no longer able to attract the females through their song. The honey eater has a unique song different from any other bird, and they use it to attract females and mate. But the numbers have dropped and so the males have no other males to hear the song and so they're not able to uh, keep the song alive. Their unique honey eater song is dying off. They're mimicking the song of friar birds and currawongs and cuckoo shrikes instead of keeping their song alive, right? They're not passing on their song to the next generation. They're not contending for their song. You know who is? The conservationists. The conservationists have come along and said, we will contend for the heart song of the honey eater. So they have recorded the honey eater's song, and they have put a couple of birds in captivity, and they're playing the song for them so that the honey eater will hear the song and be able to pass it on to future generations so the male can attract the female. We are contending for the heart song of the honey eater bird. The conservationists do that. That's what we are called to do in the book of Jude. Contend for the faith. Keep it alive. Let's not mimic other songs. That's not our song. Our song has been passed down to us. And as off as our song may sound at times, it is our song and we ought to pass it on to the next generation as we heard it. That's how we stay alive. That's how we multiply. That's how Christ's message of love and forgiveness stays. It's not that we aren't supposed to be engaging and relevant. We certainly are. With kids. my my kids' age, We've been to a lot of conservationist things. They're very engaging. it's so not a call to be boring. It's not a call to build a museum. It's a call to be engaging and to educate people on the faith that has been passed down to us. And one way we do that is through communion. And so we close our service today through communion. Paul writes to educate us on how to do communion. He, he writes, For I receive from the Lord what I also delivered to you. So Paul's saying the same thing as Jude. He's saying, this is the faith that was once passed down. So Paul's saying, I'm just giving to you what, what, what I was given. And what Jesus told us, I'm, I'm now telling you. And this is what Paul delivered to them. This is the faith that he passed on to them. He said, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, if I'm vulnerable enough, I'll say something that pastors ought not to say. Sometimes I think this is a bit weird. Sometimes I think, like, if I could fill the service this section of the service I could do something more interesting more compelling more engaging than than eating a cracker and drinking juice even if it was a loaf of bread and a cup of wine still for those of us who've been Christians a long time this has been overplayed man (laughs) for those of us who are new to the faith it's just weird it's body and blood it's weird like I could fill this time in a better way this is a bit odd but that's not what I've been called to do is it I've not called to be an inventor and to change the faith. I've been called to be a conservationist and to pass this down. And sometimes contending for the faith means contending with the voices in your head. Sometimes contending for the faith means to contend with others who are trying to change the faith. But we all contend for the faith so that we can pass it down. As strange as it may seem, we live our lives obedient to an ancient faith that has been alive for thousands of years, and we preserve it, and we ask God to make it meaningful to us. And so I'm going to give you a moment of silence before we do partake of the bread and the cup. Because Paul says, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and then eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So in this moment of silence, I would invite you to to maybe think of those four words, God, man, Christ, response. Confess to God that he's your king. Confess your own rebellion. Tell him that you trust in him as your savior and exercise your faith. I'll give you a moment of silence before we take the bread and the cup.